All right, hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode number 23. I am joined again with the most attractive man in the building. <laughs> well, you were handsome last time, so I had to I had to one-up myself. Dr. Dr. Baraki, uh, what's going on, buddy? Not much. I'm doing all right. We uh, just wrapped up a successful seminar last weekend in Arizona, and now we're back at it, ready to rustle some jimmies with uh, podcast part two here. Barbell Medicine presents... Programming Podcast Part two. with your hosts, Dr. Austin Baraki and Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Jimmy Rustling at RPE 10. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, there's been quite a bit of discussion again after publication of the last podcast uh on, on programming sort of this introduction to how we view stretch recovery, adaptation, fatigue. Um, and I think we're going to get into it quite a bit more. So the overall schedule for this one, we're going to talk about uh, um, training categorization, sensitivity, resistance, this athletic spectrum, kind of uh, uh, talk, uh, talk about how we view trainees on a spectrum and, uh, and, and get into the, the teeth of it. We'll get into some interesting thought experiments after that. I like thought experiments. I don't like the, like, yeah, not in like the physiology courses that we did in medical school. Like, okay, let's do a thought experiment. You're going to stand on the wing of an airplane and the airplane goes 36,000 feet. What happens to the partial pressure of oxygen? You're like, uh, I think it goes down. <laughs> All right. So let, let's, uh, let's kick this off. Um, let's talk about training categorization. So training categorization, most people know from the practical programming book and Ripito, uh, originally described this back in the mid 2000s, very, very elegantly, I might add. And I think we, we kind of paid some homage to that last time. Um, it was, there was no categorization of trainees prior to, to that. And so, you know, he said, let's, uh, let's call them novices, intermediates and advanced. And he gave a description that previously, again, was not seen anywhere in the literature. And, and I, I, you know, had to, had to pin, cause I, I think that's very, very, uh, uh, it was very useful at the time just to sort of even talk about programming. Um, that being said, I want to reject that model and, and, and for, for a handful of reasons, it's just that it doesn't change your management of the trainees, uh, from a coaching standpoint. And, and what I mean by that very specifically is that if someone tells me they're an intermediate based on the Ripito definition, I wouldn't do anything. I, I wouldn't know what to do just based on that categorization. Same thing with advanced. And so if it's not going to affect management, then I don't see the purpose of the categorization. Um, we need more specific uh, sort of determinants of a training level. Um, Things, things that you would ultimately affect how you coach somebody, whether that's training variations, whether that's rep scheme, whether that's total volume, whether that's, uh, you know, any variable that you would adjust as a coach, you would want the categorization of the trainee to basically tell you, okay, now I need to do this. And if it doesn't do that, then the categorization is not important, not, not useful from a practical standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that <clears throat> most of us have found the novice category useful from the standpoint of untrained people. Okay. This is how we're going to introduce them to training. But then subsequently to that, the intermediate and advanced categories get kind of progressively more hand wavy in terms of, uh, in, in terms of their utility, because then we hear things like, oh, there's early intermediate and there's mid intermediate and there's late intermediate. And these things become progressively less useful because it's like, oh, you're a, you're a late intermediate trainee. What does that exactly does that mean? And by the original definitions, it means that, hey, if I should be able to deliver some amount of stress that will result in you being able to make objective strength increases once a week, but it doesn't tell me how much stress that might be for a given individual. And that amount of stress can vary wildly across the population um, in terms of what it takes to get somebody stronger over the course of a week, for example. And so one of the things that I've cited in my lectures on this stuff at our, at our seminars is the idea that there is a known very, very large inter-individual variability in response to even to standardized training interventions. You take, a, you take a large training cohort of 500 people, you put them on the same exact program 
for strength outcomes or hypertrophy outcomes or endurance outcomes, there is evidence and data on all this stuff showing a huge spectrum of response in their training uh, results. There are people who gain almost no strength, there are people who gain massive amounts of strength or size or endurance capacity, whatever the case is. Um, so, so you're saying that it doesn't work every time, all the time. I would agree. I would. That is what I would say. And I would say that that, that catchphrase, uh, you know, I'll come back to talking about that a little bit later, but it also depends on how are you defining work, you know, like, you know, what's a, what's a successful outcome that you're going to, that you're going to claim when you say that it worked for somebody or it didn't work for somebody. So there's a lot of problems with that. And so I think we we're, we're going to, we're fleshing out this model as an alternative uh, way that we see better explains kind of what we observe in practice, really. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so basically, you, you know, what, what I'm hearing you say, and I think what we can recapitulate is that uh, not everyone will respond to the same stress the same way. And that's kind of like a duh, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. We, we know that we know that to be the case based on experience. And then we, that's uh, confirmed by multiple, multiple, multiple lines of evidence um, with regards to uh, actual studies that have been published in the literature. So I, I think if you argue that, it's just a non-starter. Like it's it's an unarguable point because it's verifiably you can falsify it. <laughs> like this works every time the same way, no matter when you know, no matter what. There there is literally no intervention that can be done on human physiology that results in a an exact, consistent, predictable response across individuals. Like I can think of nothing in medicine that does that. No medicine I can give somebody. No no agent or treatment or, or anything that I can do that, you know, across a, across a huge population of study. Oh yeah, we got hundred percent, you know, effect. And it all was the same effect across this population. So there is nothing that works like that. Yeah. Nothing. So there, so good. So now that we have that uh, out of the, uh, uh, got that out of the way. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, this is a good time to kind of discuss how we view training categorization. We've already said that we're going to kind of reject the novice intermediate advanced um, training model set forth by Ripito et al. And, and I think we could just go ahead and introduce this sort of novice, post-novice sort of descriptor, Ma mainly because I do think that the novice categorization is useful. If someone is a novice, right, and I will actually agree with the Ripitoan, uh definition that if you can add weight to the bar linearly every time that you train, okay, for the same reps, same sets and about the same qualitative effort. So I think that's actually a modifier that I'm introducing there. What I mean by that is if you do three sets of five on the squat and you add weight and it's significantly harder the next time, I actually don't know if you got stronger. Now there's, you know, variability in your, in your performance level, and there's significantly greater variability in performance for strength power athletes in general. So I'm allowing that sort of fuzz to, to sort of, uh, uh, be, be worked in there, but if you can add weight to the bar for the same reps, same sets, that is, you're doing three sets of five each time, not three by three, and then three, you know, five singles across uh, as you go along. If you can add weight, um, then you're a novice. And the, when you can't do that anymore, then you're no longer a novice. And I think that leads you to this huge area uh, where we could potentially, you know, draw up subcategories of post-novice trainees. You know, you could have... Uh, category one, category two, category three, category four, category five, but you would have to have certain criteria that placed people into each category, all right, that ultimately affected how you would program them based on the knowledge that they were in a certain category. Um, I don't think that intermediate, you know, as I said before, I don't think that just the intermediate and advanced categorizations do that um, because there is such a broad spectrum of people within the intermediate and within the advanced uh, categories themselves. So you, all you would do is someone says, Hey, I'm an advanced lifter. You go. Yeah. You, you, you could be, yeah, you could be, you could be an IPF world competitor, or you could be somebody who's been training for less than a year and basically has stopped making weekly progress and anything in anything in between. Correct. Yeah. So, so basically at that point as a coach, you would say, all right, well, what did you just do? What have you been doing for your training? What uh, has been your progression rate? Um, what you know? What have been the exercise variables that you effectively would just download from them what they've been doing, and then have to use your experience to kind of manage them going forward? Be because again, the categorization in and of itself, intermediate or advanced, is not meaningful there. Um, and and I will be the first to admit that I don't have the criteria now for the subcategorization of post novice training fully fleshed out. I think that's something that have you know 
we've been thinking about this for a while and now we're going to task ourselves with coming up with that categorization. But I don't think that I've seen anything that's terribly useful. The Russian sort of uh, scale, uh, uh, like like lifter level, like oh, if you're a you know class one or class two or class three lifter, it's based on your total. I, I, similarly, I don't find that to be useful because I think you're going to find folks, um, you know, across the spectrum who fall into any of those categories, right? If, if you're a, a, an athlete and a hyper responder to training, you may have a, a huge total, but ultimately be like category one or category two, you know, I mean, it's just, well, so let's, let's, let's explicitly lay out this kind of spectrum idea then. So, so people can kind of catch up from that standpoint to what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, so this post-novice spectrum, I feel like, and, and even part of the novice, even in the novice spectrum, relates to your sensitivity to training. And we can define your sensitivity to training as the robustness or the degree of improvement you see from a given training intervention. Um, so if in the no starting strength, novice LP, if you see the three sets of five squat, three sets of five bench, one set of five deadlift, and you get a marked improvement in strength, muscle cross-sectional area, muscular endurance, you know, that's specific to that, that, that training stress, um, you would be considered very sensitive, all right? And we know from a training physiology standpoint that as you continue to see that same stress over and over and over again, you're going to become less sensitive to it due to the repeated bout effect. Repeated bout effect suggesting that you get better at tolerating a a stress that you've seen before okay meaning that it's less stressful you use less recovery resources to do to deal with it um it's no longer novel that all that all makes sense that being said a certain individual may acclimate less to that stress over time therefore being able to run that same program for a longer period of time we hear this sort of these anecdotes like, oh, yeah, so-and-so ran the novice LP for six months and got their squat up to the mid 400s for three sets of five. That's proof that the novice LP should work for six months. It's like, well, no, that one, that person is an outlier, outlier based on data sets we have on novice LP. You know, on average, the novice LP lasts between nine to 12 weeks, gets your squat up to the upper 200s if you're a, a male, um, you know, and so and so. The person who goes beyond that not only is an outlier, but also proves to you they're very, very sensitive to training. They're getting a big effect from the same input. A person who gets a smaller effect from that input is what we would deem to be training resistant, or to use a term, um, uh, a phrase rather that we use to describe like uh, uh, the response to protein in a meal, uh, anabolically resistant. That means that they get a smaller effect from the same input as another person who would get the bigger response, who is, who is more sensitive. <clears throat> and so we, what we would expect to see for your average person is that they would start out with some degree of sensitivity to training, all right? That some, they would get some level of effect, improvement in strength, improvement in muscle cross-sectional area, improvement in conditioning from uh, a certain training stress. And that as they kept seeing that stress over and over and over again, they become more and more resistant to it. Meaning that in order to get the same effect or a continued effect, continued result, that they would have to increase the stress. They'd have to up the dose, all right? Now, some people start more sensitive or more resistant compared to others. So, you know, just all comers lie on the spectrum, super resistant, super, super uh, sensitive. Uh, things that you would associate with being super, super sensitive, high amounts of, uh, uh, of natural, uh, of, of muscle mass without training, high amounts of natural strength without training, broad shoulders, narrow hips, uh, high vertical jump. These are typically these are these are kind of describing the phenotypically more male type features that we tend to associate with athleticism, and so yeah. that's kind of what we talk yeah. about when we we talk about this as like an athletic spectrum. Um, they are definitely more sensitive to training. They get a robust training response from from a given dose of training. Most most novices in general, when they start out, are are going to be fairly sensitive to the training stress that they receive because it is again novel to them. Uh, other examples or other situations of folks who are going to be highly sensitive to training are going to be those who have detrained and are then coming back to train again. So, so if they've had a layoff or an injury or they've taken a break or something like that, they have some accumulated training history. They built up some muscle mass, some myonuclei, um, things like that, and then they come back to training. 
and they have effectively resensitized themselves to training. And this is, you know, what everybody feels when they get sore and things like that, because they don't have the effects of the repeated bad effect there to protect them from that muscle damage and, and, uh, and uh, delayed onset muscle soreness, things like that. And finally, uh, you can be artificially sensitized to training. And you can do that by way of using anabolic steroids. Uh, and so, you know, the implications on the training sensitive side of the spectrum, the people who are highly, highly sensitive. So, again, the more male, the more novice, either coming back from detraining or people using anabolic steroids, things like that, is that they will make it further on a relatively lower total dose of stress. For example, if you calculated their weekly, their weekly training volume or something like that. They will make it further on simpler programming. It'll appear to work well for longer in these people. So when you see folks who hold up, you know, examples of powerlifters from the 80s and they said, yeah, well, this person squatted a heavy triple once a week or once every two weeks or once a month and pulled once a month and made, made you know, got to world record levels of, of performance. Well, they were probably genetically had had favorable genetics and also they were extremely sensitive to training by virtue of uh, the use of anabolic drugs. Sure. I mean, yeah, anybody who's performing at the world at an elite level, by definition, has already proven themselves an outlier as far as training sensitivity based on their response. I mean, just already, again, because the person who's getting the biggest response to training is actually being exposed to training is going to be the elite level performer anyway. And then you couple that with uh, um, other other things that would increase somebody's training result like anabolic steroids, which does increase the training sensitivity. And, you know, I, I'm, we're not sitting here saying, well, they didn't work hard to get those results. Okay. But, but when looking at, uh, you know, a thousand different people all running the same program, we only expect, you know, one or two, maybe of those thousand to have a huge, huge response. That's, that's markedly different than everybody else. You know, that's, it's this bell curve. And if you're at the far right end of the bell curve, you're Ed Cohn or, you know, somebody like that. You can't you, you can't use that to say, well, see, this program on average produces this result because it, it certainly won't. When you hold that up as an example of a program that should work for everybody, because look how look how simple and straightforward this person's program is. That logic does not follow in the context of this training sensitivity spectrum, because you as an individual who might be holding this program up, you might be all the way on the other end of the spectrum. You might be far more resistant to training. And so, and so we've, we've also, we can also lay out some of the features or some of the characteristics of folks who are on the training resistant side of the spectrum. Uh, one would be on the opposite end from the novice who is more sensitive to training, more advanced trainees are going to be more resistant. In other words, they need higher doses of training to make progress. There are some folks who have poor like re genetic uh, predispositions to have, uh, to have relatively poor responses to training. We call those in the literature, those have been described as low responders, poor responders, non-responders, things like that, which then require higher doses to overcome their non-responsiveness to training. Yeah, the the, the, par the parallel is with the anabolic resistance thing with protein, and I think we've thoroughly discussed this, but it bears does bear repeating. If you give a younger person, for instance, a 20 gram dose of whey, they're gonna almost maximize their muscle protein synthesis response to the whey. If you give a older person, a six, say a 65 year old, you know, person, that 20 gram dose of whey, they may not see any response at all. They're anabolically resistant. They're amino acid resistant. But if you double the dose, they get the same magnitude of response as a younger person. And so in the training resistant, this sort of paradigm, you just need to increase the dose. Now, we're not saying you need to double the dose necessarily of stress, but the idea that uh, a resistant person needs less stress is seems to be the current thinking and is the exact opposite of what you would want to do. So just to kind of round out a few other situations in which you would be more training resistant would be kind of the, the opposite end of that athletic spectrum, the less quote unquote athletic. When you talk about broad shoulders and narrow hips, just flip that situation or the less male physiologically speaking someone is. Again, the older they are, if they have very any number of various chronic medical conditions, things like that can affect it. And then as opposed to training sensitive uh, folks who are using anabolic drugs, the opposite of that situation, if you have hypogonadism or low testosterone levels, things like that, that's going to make you relatively more resistant to training. So the implications of this is that, hey, lower total amounts of training stress, simpler programming, things like that will not work as long as it will in somebody who is highly training sensitive. And so if you hold up the training sensitive person's example of their results to people who are training resistant and saying, 
you need to be responding to training like this, you're just gonna cause a bunch of problems because it's not gonna work. And the solution is not for them to recover more because that's not the problem. They are not under recovering to the training stress. You don't have them force a whole bunch more food down, but you increase the dose of stress that you are exposing them to. That actually is a perfect segue into part two of this podcast. So let's take a little break. We're gonna talk about uh, what goes on at the Barbell Medicine Seminars. We'll come back, part two of the programming podcast. All right, thanks again for checking out the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We couldn't do this without you guys. We do have seminars coming up this year. First off, in July, we'll be in Brooklyn, New York for a full Barbell Medicine Seminar. We'll also be in Seattle, Washington in September. For those of you who are just looking to improve your lifts or want some one-on-one coaching, check us out. We'll be in Santa Cruz for a one-day training camp. We're going to cover the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, and the press, along with the Q&A afterwards. Uh, my favorite part of the seminar was uh, how concise and simply the information was laid out. I really enjoyed the lifting instruction, particularly Alan Thrall, who gave very good, concise cues that really helped me out. A lot of the cueing I received uh, at the seminar helped me you know, clear up a lot of things that I was wondering about. Uh, understanding how like resistance training and how using a barbell and getting strong helps like health outcomes, to me, is, is really fascinating, actually. The favorite part of the seminar was probably the pain, pain uh, lecture. Uh, growing my knowledge bank as a strength and conditioning coach when you think you know things you come to this you're gonna find out that maybe you don't and that you're going to learn a lot more and help as many people as possible so thanks guys well I learned a ton uh, definitely the pain stuff wasn't something I was expecting like just how much I didn't know about that hey, my favorite part of the seminar was interacting with all the individual coaches they all have their own particular style their own particular way of teaching and getting to rotate through the coaches gives you a really good I guess perspective and look at ways to improve each of the lifts. So head over to the barbellmedicine.com website and register today. Hey everyone, welcome back. We're here, part two of the programming podcast. We talked about this sort of idea of training sensitivity, training resistance, being on both sides of the spectrum. Austin, I think a good sort of uh, way to conceptualize this is to actually talk about what happens when someone goes from untrained to trained. And we can use the novice uh, linear progression that starting strength puts out as sort of uh, uh, a, an example because people are familiar with this. But if you're not familiar with it, the starting strength novice linear progression uses uh, basically two workouts that you alternate. Uh, workout one is squat, deadlift, uh, squat, press, deadlift, uh, three sets of five on a squat, three sets of five on the press, one set of five on the deadlift, and then a second workout, which is squat, bench press, power clean. So three sets of five on the squat again, slightly heavier weight, bench press, three sets of five, and then power clean for uh, five sets of three. And the idea is you're going to add weight to the bar every single time. Now, when someone is untrained, untrained for their own physiology, genetic makeup, environmental factors, all these things that summate to determine someone's training sensitivity, okay, they are the most sensitive to training that they will ever be unless they start using anabolic steroids or start doing gene doping, <laughs> you know, to, to replace like a ACTN1 genes. Uh, so now that they are super explosive or something like that, which means that they're going to get the most uh, robust effect from training that they'll ever see in their whole life um, from, a, from a given stress. So they are very sensitive. Uh, their recovery rate, if I asked you, Dr. B, can I call you Dr. B? Uh, <laughs> if I asked you, what is the untrained person's recovery rate? If I asked you if it was high or low, what would you, what would you tell me? Very low, because they're untrained. They, they have not seen this workout before. The repeated bout effect has not been trained at all. So their recovery rate is at an all-time low. Their adaptability, the amount that they will respond to the training, would you say that that's high or low? Correct, you're, so your adaptability is at an all-time high. All right, now, as you become more and more trained, let's say you're three months into the novice linear progression, okay? What has happened to your recovery rate? Having seen these same workouts for three months, is your recovery higher or lower than when you started? Significantly higher, meaning that every time that you train, you're getting less, you're imparting less stress on yourself than you were previously. Again, not only because of the repeated bout effects, you've seen the, the workouts over and over and over again, but because your recovery rate has also been trained as well. So you're able to recover at an all time high. You're setting a recovery PR every day that you, you wake up and you're alive and you're still training. And you know, as a result of that, your adaptability is at an all-time low. Basically, you're seeing less and less response to the stress because it's less stressful and you're recovering much, much faster. 
a good example, a good concrete example that I think people understand from that perspective is you do the first workout, right? You do your first three sets, five reps, relatively lightweight for most people. Uh, and you get, you might be able to come back the next session and put 10 pounds on your squat, uh, work sets, right? At no other point in your career in like in the post novice phase, advanced, you know, quote unquote, advanced phase, things like that. Will you be able to do three sets of five reps and then put 10 pounds on your all-time squat PR? because of all of all of this uh, all of this kind of physiologic changes that we're describing right and, and actually you know they they and we at times have used this sort of uh, the tanning the you know sun exposure sort of analogy that uh, training is just like tanning you know if you went out the and you're what and you're very pale skinned and you go to the sun for two hours the first time you get burnt it's too much stress for you to recover from. Okay, so you only go out for 20 minutes, but then you gradually have to increase that stress over time. Now, at a point when you get super, super tan, <laughs> your your tanning recovery rate is at an all-time high. You're the most resistant to the effects of the sun. Correct. So you need more exposure, not less. You know, the, the answer, if you wanted to get even more tan, is not take days off of seeing, you know, seeing the sun or expose yourself to less sun. You need to uh, increase your exposure to the sun. And you, the only way to increase the stress from the sun without spending more time in it, more volume of time in the sun, is to have a higher intensity of sun exposure, which you could go down, you know, closer to the you know, equator and, and, you know, uh, and all this stuff, except, except for at some point, the intensity of the sun is too high for you to tolerate at all. That would be a tanning bed situation. Um, so there's a useful intensity range that actually will drive the adaptation. Now, I think we're going to save that for part three, where we actually discuss these sort of variables. But I, I want people to start thinking about it already that more stress, just as a, a, you know, broadly speaking, is not necessarily better if it's not the correct stress. And I feel like we've been saying this for so long now. Um, you know, did you have anything you wanted to add to that sort of better stress is the correct stress versus just more stress in general well no i mean i think we're i think we're fleshing out the paradigm in a way that i hope people will follow and so if we're gonna if we're gonna go down the road of uh kind of thinking about the novice program for example what we're so so just to kind of back up for a second what we're trying to do here obviously is to lay out a model that is more useful for guiding training prescription things like that so what you're going to see very commonly is people who are going to hold up their isolated case examples of people who have responded really well to a given training program. Uh, they might do a really low frequency or a low volume or low, you know super high intensity or something like that and say, look, well, this program worked for this person. And what we're doing here is not at all arguing whether or not that program might work for somebody or not work for somebody else. The idea is that we're trying to explain the underlying principles uh, that would that would explain why somebody might respond better than another person to a given training stimulus. And so the idea would be that that person is lying somewhere more on the training sensitive side of the spectrum. And so, you know, we're, again, you know, I'm, I want to make that super clear that, yes, we know people out there, you know, we see this when people are like, look at how much progress I made on 531. We're like, cool. Yeah, that's, that's great. People made progress on text method, programs that have become like memes in our, in our, in our uh, discussion here. And yeah, we're not, we're not suggesting that people are not, cannot make progress on them, but the, we need to flesh out the underlying reasons as to why somebody may or may not make pro progress on it so that we can then have more informed decisions about how to move forward uh, and how to, how to make training decisions moving forward. And so I think that's, that's why we're going down this kind of thought experiment with the novice program is because if you think about, hey, step one, what makes the novice program work, right? So why, why does it actually work for people to the extent that it does? Uh, and our argument on to that question would be that it provides a sufficient amount of training volume at a useful relative intensity for that individual over over the time that it's working. And 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 the important thing to point out is that that statement, sufficient amount of training volume at a useful or productive relative intensity, is the same driving principle that works for every other program in existence for anybody at any stage of training. Physiology does not magically switch from being like intensity dependent when you're a novice to volume dependent when you're an intermediate or an advanced lifter. Nothing that does not change. It's the same principle. And so the way that you can think about this to really understand it is that look, if intensity was the driving factor in the novice program and we wanted to use the simplest minimum dose of training that we could early on, why would you do three sets on the squat? 
you could just do one heavy set instead, and the intensity that you get out of that one heavy set should be sufficient to drive your... And, and, and for somebody who walks in the gym the first day, it probably is enough. Of course, that stops... Yeah, you do. I mean, that's the minimum. That's the minimum dose, and it's real heavy. And intensity. If you think intensity is driving the thing, that should work. Now, the other side of this equation, I think everybody realizes that you know there are there are reasons why you don't do just one heavy single on your first day of training. But again, if the novice phase or even the intermediate phase was driven by intensity, of course, what is happening throughout your time training in this period? Your intensity is going up. Weight on the bar is going up. Inten Ab that's what I said, absolute intensity. So if absolute intensity is going up and intensity is what's driving your progress, then the the logical uh, consequence to that is that you are getting more and more and more stress throughout this period of time. And that means that your progress should accelerate over time. It should not slow down. It's not like a logarithmic curve. It should be an exponential curve because you're getting more and more and more and more stress as the weight on the bar goes up in absolute terms. Of course, this also is not what occurs. It's not what we observe. Well, so, I mean, I, th I think this relative intensity, absolute intensity thing is to just be, we just to clarify. So, uh, you know, your percent, so your one rep max is the m most amount of weight you can lift for a single repetition. And if you get stronger, uh, if you add weight to the bar, then your absolute intensity can go up. So, so three sets of five, a really, you know, challenging three sets of five is somewhere between this 80 to 85% range. All right. And as you get stronger, your, you know, your one R, as your one RM is going up, your three sets of five, that 80 to 85% is also going up. Um, so the absolute intensity, the amount of weight on the bar is going up, but your relative intensity is likely staying the same as long as your strength is going up. And what I mean by that is if your strength for your one RM is actually going up each week, and your three sets of five is also going up each week, then your average intensity is staying the same. And, and so principally what we're saying is that increasing the weight on the bar in and of itself to the absolute intensity may not actually be applying more stress because if it's the same relative intensity, then it's no more stressful than it was the last time you saw it. In fact, because you'd seen that same workout so many times before, it's actually less stressful at some point. And that inflection point when the workout is actually less stressful or not stressful enough to drive the adaptation that you can realize the next session is the point where the starting strength LP stops working. Okay. Even though you added weight to the bar, it's not that you need to recover more between the sessions It's the stress wasn't enough. And so you need more stress and, and, and simultaneously likely a longer sort of realization period because it's going to take more sessions to accumulate that stress. Right, exactly. And so this is something that I think uh, we've we've discussed before where people continue to conflate the idea of it was really hard with, you know, stress from a training perspective. And we are continuing to try to divorce those ideas in people's mind because we fully recognize that at the end of the program, the the three sets of five that you're doing are very, very, very hard. Uh, however, that does not uh, that does not uh, kind of reflect a very, very, very high amount of physiologic stress that you are receiving from that training session. Because if it was, and that stress was enormous, then that means that you should be getting a substantial disruption of homeostasis from that, and then you should, and then you should recover from that in some amount of time, and then you could realize with higher performance at some later date. And so, if your pro, if you, if you get to that point where it's really, really, really hard and you can't do it the next session. Well, hypothetically speaking in this thought experiment, what would be the minimum effective dose of change that you could make to that program if in this paradigm of intensity is driving my progress and it's really, really hard, it's a really, really high stress and I need to recover from it. The simplest thing you could do, just add a rest day. Take one day, train one day, take two days off instead of one. Everything in the program stays the same. You don't need a light day. You don't need a reset. You don't need to change the reps. Nice and simple, just like the way we like it, right? And so it's almost seductively simple how simple this is. And so if that was the case, then yeah, you'd come back two days later and you would keep PRing every session. This might work for like one or two more sessions at that point. And then it stops working. And again, you come back to the same question. My sets are really, really hard. They must be such a huge amount of stress that I'm receiving that I need more time to recover from it. So then you train one day on, you take three days off. You don't need to change the program. Keep it simple. You come back three days later, 
you don't make your reps at that point. You don't get it done. And this is because, again, the stress is insufficient to keep driving progress. If we ask why is this not going to work ad infinitum, you know, it's because your total stress for a the given time interval that, that, that we would deem useful to an, analyze a program, so let's say a week, if we use that seven-day sort of um, uh, time interval to assess the variables of a program, the less you train, the less total stress you're actually imparting on yourself within the training week as you space these training days out. Um, and, and, you know, our last podcast, we, we discussed how the stress recovery adaptation cycle is always occurring. You're always applying stress recovery and adapting over and over and over again. It's not just these finite periods of time. Um, so if we use a week as our consistent training inter- interval to like analyze these, these variables, if you start taking two days off and then three days off and then four days off, your weekly stress is actually decreasing. And it's going down regardless of like hand waving about how long your overload period is and stuff like that, because that's not how this works as we have hopefully hammered home. No, yeah, I I never quite got that, the argument of like this discrete overload period. I mean, just the general physiological changes to training, um, you know, acutely your testosterone goes down, cortisol goes up, growth hormone goes up until you eat again. Um, you know, and then it goes back to baseline. Like that's what, that's what happens. So if you're looking just from like a hormonal marker of like, uh, overload events, you know, that's, that's not going to be sensitive enough to tell you, oh, this was an overload event. If you're looking at performance, you know, improvement as your marker of, okay, the overload event is now over. My performance has improved. I think, you know, that's not necessarily sensitive enough because so many different factors go into performance, particularly at a PR level. Um, and there's this huge, huge variation in, uh, in your ability to perform on a given day. If you're a strength power athlete, there's a big, larger variation than endurance athletes, for instance. So, you know, that's why we like to use this, you know, having both a quantitative input. So like weight on the bar reps and sets, and also a qualitative input, like RPE reps and reserve, uh, or even an objective sort of qualitative marker, like bar speed that would tell you like, oh, this is my performance. But I still don't think that marks the end of an overload event. Like, you know, okay, now you're through. It's just, you realized some of the previous training effect demonstrably. And if you have, and if you haven't, well, then you haven't realized that, uh, that, that training effect yet. It doesn't mean that the overload event is still uh, occurring. It just, you know, I think that's actually just a poor descriptor of of what's going on physiologically in in any event. Um, so, so, so I I think you just stated very elegantly that the training less because your intensity dependent is, again, it does not comport, it does not agree with uh, what we know about physiology, and exercise performance. Yeah, and so and so the other the other cave- or caveats or corollaries or other points associated with this is is this: to the extent that you observe that sort of a programming setup working, it is likely not working for the reasons you might think it is working. You also might be applying it to somebody who is uniquely sensitive to training and will mount a robust response to whatever you throw at them. But the the underlying explanation for why a program is working or not working is not just semantics, but it's important for the reasons that we're laying out here because it guides what you do at the end of when, when that stops working. Because again, if you know if you're in this paradigm of everything is you know, recovery dependent, and you just try to out recover your training. Well, that doesn't really work um, at either. You'd train less, you'd just continue eating more, and you'd keep PRing in- infinitely, which is unfortunately not how things work. It'd be nice if it was, but it's not. Um, and so, you know, I think I think one of the one of the cool things about this model of uh, training sensitivity, this athletic spectrum deal, laying things out, is that basically. The idea is that you could plot every single possible trainee somewhere on this spectrum from one end to the other. And and that includes males and females, and there's a significant overlap between them. So there are obviously highly athletic females who will respond very robustly to training far more than some males. And so when you plot all trainees on this spectrum, you eliminate the categorical differences or dichotomy men and women. So, you know, whereas you previously might have said, yeah, women just need five sets of three on their squad or whatever the case is instead of three sets of five. Well, all of a sudden that doesn't really apply as well anymore. Instead, if you wanted to do something like five sets of three, you would reserve it for the training resistant end of the spectrum and not just say it's for women. Because again, there are gonna be women who respond more like men, men who respond more like women. And identifying those people is gonna be very important 
when it comes to managing their training long term. Reason why is because, hey, if you put out the idea that this program is the optimal program that works for every single person every time it's ever done, and then you apply it to somebody, let's say a male, who is on the training resistance side of the spectrum, and he fails to achieve the perceived norms as to what they should, what they should, uh, what they should achieve on that program, that statement places implicit blame on the individual for failing to respond to that training program. Whereas the underlying issue was that, you know, they ran it out and then it became an inappropriate dose of stress for them because they're training resistant and that needs to go up. And that solves the problem of people spinning their wheels and resetting because they think that they did not achieve an average number. They didn't get strong enough or their weights aren't heavy enough to be done with the novice program when they're just training resistant. That's the whole problem. They don't have to feel bad about themselves about it. So, so, you know, do you think there are any modifiable factors that make somebody more training resistant or more training sensitive? I feel like you're leading me in a certain direction. <laughs> well, well, so, I mean, we discussed some stuff that are non-modifiable factors, right? So like your genetic makeup, every literal ex physical experience that you've ever had in your entire life, your general expectations for training, uh, you know, steroid use. Yeah, so I think a couple, well, steroid use would be one that's modifiable, whether or not you use them. I think being in a caloric surplus versus a caloric deficit probably plays plays a role here. I think to the extent that someone has chronic medical conditions, um, getting those under control can definitely improve training sensitivity. And that's something we've talked about before on like the NSAID podcast and the NSAID literature, where you have older folks who on the average tend to have more kind of like smoldering chronic inflammation. You treat them with some NSAIDs, knock that inflammation down, and they get better hypertrophic responses because you have sensitized them to training to some extent. At least that's the, the theory. So uh, those would be the main ones that come to mind. Yeah, a few others that are just, you know, kind of when peeking at the literature, this that interested me and, and I thought were would be fun to discuss, uh, you know, central, central adiposity. So having a lot of visceral adipose tissue, um, that is an endocrine organ effectively. So the adipose tissue itself releases hormones that work locally and, you know, systemically as well, uh, that ultimately compromise your ability to, uh, receive a hypertrophic response. Muscle protein synthesis response is secondary to training and nutrition. In fact, people, those who are insulin resistant tend to have a little bit, uh, less robust response to for muscle as far as muscle protein synthesis goes so you would that would be another modifiable risk factor if you're a smoker if you drink a lot of alcohol for instance all these things are effectively myotoxins on some level which just by the way would be a great instagram handle like myotox not myodetox but my, myo myotox uh, you, you'd be like a type that, that, that first one you mentioned is a good point to the extent that someone thinks that they need to continue gaining weight to make progress. If their waist measurement is approaching like danger zone, if they're starting to push things much over 40 inches, you know, they're arguably setting themselves back from a training sensitivity standpoint more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, and so that's the thing, you know, yes, gaining muscular body weight would definitely improve your result. But, you know, as you become less and less sensitive to the training, you're going to have a harder and harder time doing that. And then that sort of split between muscle mass gained and fat gained is going to start skewing towards the fat gain, which is actually going to compound your problems like a, a positive feedback loop, but the, but the, but a bad kind. And it's even, and well, it's even, it's even worse if you continue to be in a caloric surplus and you progressively reduce your training volume, because then you're getting less muscular hypertrophy out of it. Yeah. You're adding, you're adding gasoline to the fire here. Um, so the other things like medic, uh, certain medications that we know that are also myotoxins would make somebody less uh, training sensitive. Uh, if you're super stressed out, just like a, from a psychological standpoint, um, I think your your performance and ultimately um, how you respond to training is also going to be compromised. So that's going to increase training resistance, lack of sleep, um, you know, to a point where that interferes with either psychological and or physiological sort of response to training. It's going to make you more training resistant, um, you know. There are, and some of those things are modifiable depending on your, the resources that you have. So I think that every factor that we would go, we would classify as sort of, oh, this may help with your recovery or this may help with your, uh, you know, improvement in results of training basically modifies your training sensitivity. Uh, supplement, su supplementation, um, you know, not just of like anabolic steroids, but also certain ergogenic aids that we know work like creatine effectively increases your training sensitivity by increasing the amount of muscle protein synthesis you get per training per training stress unit um same thing with like beta alanine betaine and hydras and, and stuff like that caffeine allows your performance to go up uh and your rate of perceived exertion to go down for a given you know bout of training which would ultimately improve your training sensitivity 
Uh, yeah, so so I think this sort of modeling of of the spectrum is very unique and ultimately allows for a better explanation for why certain people or certain things affect the results that are seen from training. And therefore, because it kind of encompasses all these different things, it'd be very useful to use this paradigm versus novice intermediate advanced to describe train, you know, the response of, uh, that a trainee gets to a certain stress. Um, and, and subsequently interventions that you may use to modify that result. So, uh, as sort of just a, a you know, more pra- a very practical example that, that should wrap this up pretty nicely. If I had somebody that I suspected to be super training resistant, this person went on the starting strength, obviously linear progression for seven weeks before they couldn't add weight to the bar anymore. I know that they have d- demonstrated that they are very training resistant compared to other folks who would be able to run that program longer. And I would then look into modifiable factors um, such as alcohol use, smoking, uh, medical conditions, uh, hypogonadism, if they're exhibiting other signs, and you can refer to our testosterone podcast to like sort of, uh, you know, suss that out. Uh, supplementation, um, you know, general stress in their life, sleeping, body fat, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, previous level of physical activity, so maybe they're just, they have no like base of training to sort of draw from. Uh, and that would ultimately affect management because if someone's super, super training resistant, uh, I know that I'm going to have to make earlier changes or cha- changes earlier in the programming that would ultimately increase the productive stress that I'm applying to them, which would include more training variation, potentially more conditioning if, if body fat levels were a concern, different dietary interventions. And so, yeah, they need, you need to get their work capacity to the point where they can deliver the sufficient amount of training stress to themselves to uh, to make the adaptation you're looking for. Whereas that would it not be anywhere near as much of a concern in somebody who's highly training sensitive because they're like, you start them on three sets of five and you're like, hey, I'll see you when you're squatting 495 for five. Right, exactly. So, which leads me to then, when would I actually have somebody train less? And uh, the answer is if they're a competitor of mine, he's gonna show up to a meet and uh, I feel like they may have a good chance to beat me but they asked me to program for them, I would have them train less so that they would get weaker. And then, so that way that I could win. Well, it's a good thing you're not, good thing you're not programming for me then. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So I would have Austin train, go from four days a week to three days a week, do less sets, uh, take more rest days, uh, do one heavy set, that's it, uh, and just tell him to, to run it out. <laughs> and see how much body fat he could gain. <laughs> So that would to get out of the weight class in general, so I wouldn't have to worry about him, uh, uh, you know, perform performing too well, um, you know. But but and, and we say this, and we're kind of joking around because you know, if you've listened to any of our stuff, you know that train less is not really our our go to management. Um, but we say all this because it's happening. I mean, it, we you have people who are demonstrably less train or demonstrably training resistant based on the results that they're getting. Uh, compared to norm- both normative data that we have and then also just empirical data because they've been training, doing X and getting Y result and that result is not very good. And so the response has been, oh, we'll just decrease the stress, recover more without, without it, 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 and, and that's just wrong, 100% verifiably wrong. And, uh, but that's cool, you know, so we'll just see you at the meet. Well, it's just frustrating, you know, the people are like, oh, there's all this discussion going on. I'm like, I don't think there needs to be this much discussion. The The proof is in the pudding. And then if you have a theory on training, that's cool. Have it. All right. Then you have to go verify that your thinking is correct based on existing studies uh, with thousands and thousands of people. Um, and then if it doesn't fit, right, if, the, if it doesn't fit, then you have to reject your model. And I think that it is seductive to keep things very simple, focus on recovery, don't train too much. You know, that's all seductive, but it just is, is wrong. It's just wrong. And, and it's wrong from a performance standpoint. And it's wrong from a health, uh, health condition standpoint when it comes to training. We talked about this last time. If you have high blood pressure, we know that there's a volume threshold and a dose-dependent response to training's effect on high blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes or... You know, literally anything that you want to, you want to, you want to discuss. So, uh, uh, muscle hypertrophy is volume dependent, not intensity dependent. It's intensity independent, provided the volume is high enough. So, 
I guess I can't think of a reason why you would have someone train less if you weren't peaking them or trying to sabotage their performance. Yeah. I mean, you, as we've said this before, where we might start out someone with a low amount of stress, if that's what we expect, they'll be able to tolerate. But the goal is always to get them to train more over time, even if they're even if they're older and they say, oh, I only train two days a week because I'm older. And it's like, well, when are you ready to add in your third day? We need to get you training more. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the 75-year-old person might come in, you know, day one and squat one heavy set of five. That may be appropriate stress for them at the, at the time. And, and actually, I think from a just broadly speaking, training sensitivity, training resistant standpoint, if you expect an untrained person to be the most training sensitive that they will ever be, it makes sense that you could start them with a lower volume, knowing that's going to have to increase over time. Yeah, I, I agree that, you know, this probably doesn't happen in other sports. You know, if you want to swim faster, you're going to have to swim more. If you want to run faster and do better at the marathon, you're going to have to run more. If you want to get better at tennis, you're going to have to practice and play more. I mean, um, so it, it seems likely that this, this also holds. Uh, but, hey, I think this is a good place to break. We'll come back. Uh, the next part of the programming podcast we're going to talk about uh, post-novice programming considerations and kind of how we would lay this out uh, very, very practically. So less theory, more practic- practical application on the third installment of the Barbell Medicine Programming Podcast. But thank you guys for joining us here at Barbell Medicine. Leave us a positive review over on iTunes. It seems like we have like a, a 15 to 1 positive to negative <laughs> sort, of, sort of commentary over there. So we appreciate you guys. Uh, um, leaving some reviews and let us know what you guys want to hear about next. Otherwise, we're just going to uh, do some free association on the on upcoming podcasts. For uh, Dr. Baraki and all of us here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time. Preventative health and wellness side of things, which I really enjoy. My name is Dr. Austin Baraki, a coach and physician at Barbell Medicine. My favorite part is uh, basically our frequent interactions, and we get to kind of bounce ideas off each other, constantly sending each other new things to think about, uh, debating things, and trying to put that into practice, and also putting it into improving some of the products and things we do, like uh, like our seminar, and kind of educate. My name is Leah. I am a coach and the admin. So it's being able to work with a wide variety of people and get to know them and see them make progress in being healthier and meeting their goals. Alan Thorl, I am a coach. I'd have to say working alongside some of the best coaches that I've met. As much as I enjoy working with uh, other people, I'm also learning a lot, so I'm enjoying myself. My name is Tom Campitelli. Uh, I am a coach. Uh, my favorite thing about working uh, at Barbell Medicine is the chance to bounce programming ideas off of Jordan and Austin.